We hope you enjoy this podcast from Light Church Edithburg. To find out more about us, visit lightchurch.co. So good. So I, I, I'm moved by a couple things in this story, um, or lots actually. I, I'm moved by, um, for me, I just, I'll be vulnerable with you. If I was being tortured, um, I, 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 I'm not sure I wouldn't give up. Uh, I, I'd like to think I wouldn't, but not real sure about that. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I'd like to think I wouldn't deny Christ. Um, uh, but, you know, once again, how much, can, how much pain can a person taste before you just sort of give in? Um, I, I'm, I'm moved by Paul's perseverance. I'm moved by grit. Um, I, I think there's some things that seem fairly natural, but they're not that, they're not that natural. Um, uh, if, grit was, if grit was common, everybody would have it, but P- Paul, Paul has this thing. I, I'm also moved by a couple things with Paul that I think deserves a, a stop and given attention to, that Paul had such a profound trust in Christ that in none of his writings ever does he ever attack Caesar or his torturers or the Roman military. He, he, he does attack Judaizers, but they were the ones going, they're out, we're in, they're wrong, we're right, right? He, he, he doesn't, um, uh, one of the most moving stories I, I, I can find from Paul, which I, I'll talk about a bit more tonight, is when he, um, when he gets arrested in Ephesus, and, um, and the, the, the pagan judge in Ephesus says, what do you want me to do with him? He has not blasphemed our goddess, not even once. Um, I think that, that that is just a profound challenge like what Paul built a thriving church next door to a temple of a pagan goddess and he never said one bad thing about the goddess which leads me to this challenge could we do that could we have that level of a profound trust and here's what I'm finding I, 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 and I've only seen this in the last year and it moved me so I'm going to share it with you so, it, it'll, it, so that it'll move you uh, hopefully, um, that the narrative of Scripture and the narrative of my life is that God seems to be humble enough to always meet you where you think He is. God meets people where they think He is, right? So let, let me see if I could explain that, what I mean by that. If you go back to Abraham, Abraham thought God lived in the sky and you had to kill kids to get rain. So when God shows up to Abraham, he meets Abraham exactly where Abraham thought he was. God shows up to Abraham and says, you think you need to kill kids? Kill your kid. It's fine. And Abraham doesn't ask why. He doesn't ask how. He's not confused. That would be a confusing thing if God shows up and says, kill your kid. You'd be asking all kinds of questions. Why? How? Where? What does it accomplish? Nope. Abraham says, yeah, naturally. Like, God wants us to kill kids. I've just met God. It's natural that he wants me to kill my kid. Absolutely. But then God enters into that moment with Abraham and says, hey, I've got a better idea. Let's kill animals instead of children. So, so God, instead of closing the conversation, seems to be the person who enters into the conversation and busts it open with all kinds of meaning. That, that God is not that which draws, God is not that which gives us meaning. God is that which renders all things meaningful. That, and that's two different things. That God is not that which, um, God is not that which draws the end of the story. God is that which enters into what we think the end of the story is and busts it wide open. Even to the point of death. Because death, if anything's the end of the story, death is the end of the story. But Jesus engages death and brings 
resurrection, right? So, so you, you've even got that. So, so, so God meets Abraham where Abraham thought he was only to engage the story and bust it wide open. So Abraham changes the whole world from, animal, from uh, human sacrifice to animal sacrifice. Years later, a guy named Moses comes along and Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house and Pharaoh's house, God was the son. And so the sun, no trick, is made of fire, right? So Moses thought God was a fire his whole life. That's what he was taught, that God is a fire. God's a fire. God's a fire. So when God goes to meet Moses, how does he meet him? A fire, but, but, but a different sort of fire. You think I'm a fire? I'll be a fire. I'll be whatever you need me to be. Just connect with me. That's all I need. Hey, you think I'm a fire? I'll be a fire. Fair enough. Fair enough. But, but it, was, it was a different kind of fire. It wasn't a fire that consumes everything in its path. It was a fire that didn't even burn up the most flammable thing in the wilderness. As the great T.S. Eliot wrote, we only sustain, only suspire, consume by either fire or fire. That we will live our whole life terrified of the consuming fire of the sun god Ra, or by faith will be able to embrace the refining fire of a loving Yahweh who, although he will perfect us, he will never harm us for the bush was not consumed. That is Shakespeare, that is Shakespeare and the Hulk having a kid. The... the um, so, so, so God meets Moses where he thinks he is and then busts it wide open. You, you thought God was a consuming, no, God's a refining fire, much different. And later, it says that God showed up as a rock, a pillar of a cloud, a pillar of fire. Um, uh, later, Paul said that the rock in the desert was Christ, <laughs> which leads to all kinds of questions like, is there ever a moment where God can be a rock in the desert? And if he could be a rock in the desert, what else could he be? Uh, years later, the world, the Roman Empire, thought who was God? Caesar. Actually, if you read Roman history, uh, the Roman poet Virgil said that, that in Caesar was the fullness of God incarnate and no other name on earth by which men can be saved other than the name of Caesar. Uh, does, that, does that language sound familiar? <laughs> um, they, they, they have found that they, Caesar Augustus, they change. If you ever wonder why ancient calendars are different than today's calendar, they changed the calendar to coincide with the final day of Caesar Augustus's birth. So Caesar Augustus said he was God in flesh, and since he was God in flesh, he should be worshiped. And since he was God in flesh, he should be worshiped primarily. So he instituted a 12-day celebration of his birth. It lasted from December 19th to December 31st every year, and he called those 12 days Advent. It was called the advent of Caesar Augustus, right? And so the Roman Senate changed the Roman calendar to coincide to make a new New Year's Day, the final day of the celebration of the birth of Caesar Augustus. They have found plaques outside of Ephesus where they tried to explain to the Roman Empire why the calendar was changing. And it said it's because a providence has given us in most perfect order a God called Caesar who will bring peace on earth and goodwill to all mankind for there is a gospel of his goodness going around the world. This was the propaganda of Caesar. So could you see where the gospel writers are going? Just for them to use the word gospel, that was using a Roman term that was like, Neh. so, so in, in the Roman Empire, who did they believe God was? Caesar. So finally, the world was in a place where they believed God could inhabit a man. Finally. Finally, the world was in a place of consciousness where they believed God could be incarnate in a human being. So God says, oh, perfect. I'll come as a human being then. 
You think God's a man? I'll come as a man, but, but I'll turn it upside down. I won't be the same kind of oppressor that you're seeing. I'll be a person who serves the lowly. That's what God is like. That, that the God revealed in Christ Jesus, the ultimate picture of what God is like, is, is a kenotic God. If you want to use the theological term, the word is kenosis, which is to, to purposely choose to empty yourself. It is, it, is the, it is a God that embraces his deity by choosing not to be God and identify with human beings and suffer and, and, and die and, and, and defeat death for all of humanity. That this is not a God sitting on a throne watching people suffer and enriching himself. This is a God that gets in the muck and the mire and suffers and dies and serves humanity. That that is the image of God that should win out. That we actually need to journey toward a more Christ-like God. Right? So this, this is what you see. And, 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 and for that, you see this in Paul. And I'm, I, I'm trying to exhibit this in my own life. You don't just see Paul's profound trust with God, with him. You see Paul exhibiting profound trust in God's work in them. He never bashes them. He, you, you, know, you know how many times Paul uses the word hell? Zero. In other words, he's being tortured, and he never used hell to threaten his torturers. In other words, Paul somehow spread the gospel of Jesus without the concept of hell? <laughs> How did he do that? Paul had this profound trust in Christ's work in him and Christ's work in them. That if Christ is at work in me, he's also at work in them. And I need to trust Christ's work in them without me having to manipulate it. That my job is to cooperate with what I see God doing, not manipulate it to what I need it to be. I, I am profoundly inspired by Paul's bravery, his grit, his trust in God for himself, but also his trust in God with other people. See, our default button, at least, I'll, I won't include you, I'll include me. My default button is to, is to drop back into controlling the outcome instead of trusting God with it. And that's not what you find in this story. You find a guy profoundly living so, so let's put some language around that. Caleb, if you could bring that next slide up for me, the one that, that you had. Yeah, there you go. So he's not saying that he'll get out of prison. He doesn't get out of prison. He's not saying that his suffering's going to end. It, in fact, does not end until he dies. He's tortured till he dies. He's not saying that he'll avoid death. He absolutely does not avoid death. He actually, in the letter, seems resigned to, he has convinced himself death is better than, than what he's living, but he's going to live for Christ until he dies and not be ashamed. He is saying that no matter how this turns out, my heart, hands, and taste will be clean. That's the wisdom literature of, of the Hebrew people. Is It's not faith to get out of something. It's when you're in the middle of something, my hands are clean, my heart is pure, my taste is sweet. My hands are clean, my heart is pure, my taste is sweet. My hands are clean, my heart is pure, my taste is sweet. Let's put some other language around it. No matter how difficult this gets, I won't enter into a way of thinking I'll regret later. Like, like this is getting bad, but I don't want to go crazy here. I don't want to lose the plot. Uh, no, no, no matter how this turns out, I'll keep my ways clean before God. Psychologists um, have named this, actually. When, when people go through a divorce... Most people who go through a divorce enter into a six-month season that psychologists have uncreatively called crazy time. And, and what it is is it's that your compass is spinning and you do things that are completely out of character. Pure people go promiscuous. Um, Non-drinkers drink heavily. 
What, what, what happens is, is, is it's not that they're a bad person. It's when your compass spins. It, it's, it's a, so so this will turn out for my deliverance is a commitment not to enter into crazy time. It's, it's, it's that. It's, it's no matter how big the stress gets, I'll, keep, I'll stay focused on God and keep my life straight. Maybe the most simple way we could say it is, is no matter what, I'll praise God. No matter what. No matter what, I'll praise God. Hit the next slide for me. So how do we miss this? How do we miss out on my deliverance? How do we miss this? Well, one, I think we can miss this by generalizing the particular. So the things that sabotage, my hands will be clean, my heart will be pure, my taste will be sweet, is to generalize the particular. This is, let me see if I can explain this. This is where we take one moment and we, general, we universalize it to everything, right? So, so you, you see this all the time. Well, I, I, you might not, I do, because I travel all over the place. I, I see people going, oh, oh, I just, I would never go to church. I hate church. Why? You know, and if you have a good reason, I'll hear you out. But why? Why? Oh, because church hurts people. Church hurts people. What? I, well, the, those people I know, they, they, they feed 1,500 people every Saturday, and they've built one hospital and three um, education centers in the, in, in the poor Southeast Asia region. I, actually, that, that church is actually doing a lot of good in the world. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. There was this one lady at one church in this one place, and she sat on the third row, and she started a rumor about me, and a lot of people believed it, and it shamed me really bad. Right. So one lady at one moment at one time hurt you, but then you just generalize that to everybody, right? Or you see this some with women whose, whose husbands have cheated on them. So then they use words like, all men are pigs. All men? All of us? Really? All of us are pigs. How do you overcome that? Like, are all men cheat? No, they don't. I know lots of men who haven't cheated. Now, your husband cheated, okay, but uh, um, all men don't cheat. Actually, statistics say women cheat more than men. So I don't want to... Uh, and, and, that's, and that's absolutely true. Actually, 1.6 times more than men, so almost double. But nonetheless, um, that, was, that was a study done by the University of Washington in a double-blind study where no one was scared of getting caught, and, and the truth actually came out. So, so, it, it, but, but so that's, like, that's like a husband whose wife has cheated going, all women cheat. No, they don't. There's lots of faithful women. There's lots of women that would stand by you if you're sick. There's lots of women who would do that. Now, now you might have had an experience with one woman who did, or one woman who wouldn't stand with you when you were sick, or one, but that doesn't mean everybody does. That doesn't mean, or, or, or all politicians are crooked, right? No, well, not all of them are. No, there's some really, there's some good mayors around, right? There's some good, there's some good ones, right? There's some, there's some, there's some ones that actually are trying to work with both sides to come up with the best solution, right? And they, 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 they're, they're trying to do that, right? And they're, they're good-hearted. They're not enriching themselves with it, right? So, so it's, it's that. Or, or, or sometimes, sometimes we freeze the present. So to freeze the present is a psychological mechanism by which it is our, def this is, and this is hardwired into neuropsychology, so you don't have to, you can't overcome this. You, you just, I mean, you can't change it. You just have to overcome it, is what I mean. So, so our, the way our brain works, our brain is made to focus its hotspot on the most recent memory, right? And th th this is why people tend to default to the negative, because the only way news sells is if it's negative. And your brain is hardwired to remember the most recent memory. So if all you're hearing is the bad news really loudly, you start thinking the world's getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, which in actuality it's not, right? It's actually getting way, way 
way better, right? So we tend to freeze the present. So what that means is this is the thought that says this pain I'm in will never leave me ever, right? And it's just in us to do that. Like if we, um, heck, if we get a bad enough cold, we're thinking I'll never breathe again, right? Or if, 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 if there's a heartbreak, so somebody we love a whole lot breaks up with us, we're like, oh God, I'll never love anybody ever again, right? Not true, right? Absolutely not true. And if you've ever parented a teenager, you've had to deal with this because teenage relationships break up. That's how it works, right? Very few people on earth marry their eighth grade sweetheart. We started going together when we were in eighth grade and we're still here 65 years. Later. No, that, almost never, right? Almost always there's a breakup and people say, oh man. When I was a youth pastor, I swear half my week was, Shane, I love her so much. Oh my God. I'll never love anybody. Uh, you know, they're 14 years old. Yeah. And, so, and so we freeze the present. To freeze the present is the idea that this pain is never ending. My tomorrow is simply a repeat of yesterday. That, that, the, the philosophical word for that is despair. Despair is the conviction that my tomorrow is simply a repeat of yesterday. So we can, we can miss my deliverance. And remember, we're defining my deliverance as clean hands, pure heart, sweet taste. Clean hands, pure heart, sweet taste. We miss that by generalizing the particular, right? As a teacher, uh, most people like me. I'm, I'm decently likable. Um, most, most people like me. Um, if I get 10,000 emails, 9,999 of them are thank you. Um, this really helped me or you helped my son or... My son was 28 and was leaving the faith, but you made Jesus beautiful, whatever the case may be. But one is horrible, and I mean horrible. And, and, and this is just how our brain works. My brain focuses on the one horrible one for at least two or three days. Uh, and I forget all the 9,999. It's like I'm a weak person or something. It's like, it's like why, why do I care about that one plonker's voice so much? And, and, and if you're not careful, especially when you're tired, for me, it's like, no one's listening to me. I'm not making any difference. Why am I doing, why am I sacrificing so much to do this? Why am I, you know, what, 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 what am I getting out of this, you know? And, and then, and then you, you, can, you can miss my deliverance by, gen, by generalizing the particular. And we, we do this in ministry a lot, where we devalue the people who show up while thinking about the people who aren't here, right? Why would we do that? But we do. That's generalizing the particular. We freeze the present. We can miss it. If we think my tomorrow simply repeated yesterday, we can get in despair really quick. And the third thing we can do is we can lose the plot. So we, so, and, think, and that's just a natural progression. If I generalize the particular and freeze the present, why wouldn't I lose the plot? Why wouldn't I just go, well, stuff it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And actually, and I think that's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Solomon admits to the whole world, probably never thinking we'd still be reading it, but Solomon admits to the whole world that he had moments where he just threw his hands up in the air and went, well, stuff it. I'm just going to do what I want to do because nothing seems to matter anyway, right? And so, and part of wisdom is knowing those moments come and deal with it well. Let, let's, let's, say it, let's say it this way. Next slide. He says, through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus. So I want to focus on those two statements. He says, through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. So here's what he's doing. He's making a commitment to keep his hands clean, his heart pure, and his taste sweet. 
And how's he gonna do that considering he's being tortured and he's gonna die? He says, here's how I'm gonna do it. Through your prayers and the provision of, God, of the Spirit of Jesus. So let's walk through both those phrases. Next slide. So what does this teach us about community? Togetherness. Identifying with people's pain. See, see I think what happens is, is we tend to cop out on the God will be faithful with his spirit. That'll be enough. So someone's going through something and we're like, well, God's with you. Or, or we, tell, we tell single people, like I, I'm not married, but I'm very happily not married. But, but some, people, some people are not married and they're, they're, they're in real agony about that. I mean, it's really a source of stress for them. And then we devalue what's important to them and we devalue their stress by going, it's okay, you're not alone, you, you have Jesus. And they're going, what? Jesus doesn't cuddle. What are you talking about, right? Like, what the heck are you talking about, right? So here's what we do. And I think this is a big challenge for the church. We minimize our role in someone's deliverance by saying God is enough. But what you find in Scripture is that God is never enough. Adam had God in the garden, and God called him alone. It's not good for man to be alone, right? And so, so here's, here's what this has to teach us. And I think this is so important because it, it, it is a, um, a progression of bad thought. Bad thought number one is, if we have enough faith, we'll get out of it. Bad thought number two would be, they're in a problem. I'm going to exercise my faith to get them out of it. Bad thought number three would be, if I can't solve the problem, it's going to show I don't have enough faith, so I'll avoid the problem, right? What would happen if we absolved ourselves from the stress of having to solve the problem? And embrace the call of God to simply be present in the problem. To be present with them. I think we have a lot to learn from the Jewish people on mourning and grief. Um, I, th I think the Jews have a lot to teach us on several things. But I think that's probably finance and, and that are the two big ones for me. Uh, the, the, you, where, you, right, wrong, or indifferent. Whatever you think about the Jews, they understand money. And they understand grief. And in Jewish grief, they, they have to do something called sitting shiva. Sitting shiva is where if someone's in a lot of pain, you are required to sit with them for seven days. And, you're, this, is the, and this is what's critical. You're not allowed to speak. How good is that? Have you ever had somebody in pain and you dreaded seeing them because you couldn't, you didn't know what to say. So in Jewish culture, they just remove that. You're not allowed to say anything. <laughs> I love that. That is so good. Here's what you do. When you sit Shiva, you sit with them and you do two things. You tear your clothes. The reason is, is because the idea of grief is to allow the outer shell to be opened up so that the real thing can come out. You also, this is all symbolism, but they, they just do that. That you also paint your face with, you rub your face with ashes. The reason is, is because when somebody weeps, there's involuntary muscle cramping in the face that you can't duplicate if you're not weeping. Like if you try to make the face that people make when they cry, you really cry, you can't do it unless you're crying. It's an involuntary muscle cramping uh, contraction system that, that happens. So when someone really weeps, they're ugly. 
And so in Jew, in Jewish thought is this, is we don't want to rob somebody from the opportunity of weeping because of insecurity around being ugly. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna make ourselves the ugliest person in the room so that everybody looks at us so that that person's free to weep. And what we do is we give them the gift of being able to weep by just giving them our presence. So here was the rule on sitting Shiva. You couldn't speak unless you were spoken to. And it removes the pressure on the griever from hosting you and it removes the pressure on you from having to come up with a pat answer for something that has no pat answer. And you give each, you give each other the gift of each other's presence. It, it, it has a lot to do with teaching us how to identify with someone's pain. How much better would the church be if we absolved ourselves from the pressure of having to solve the problem and just gave us the gift of presence? I, I, I'll... I'll make this point with an illustration about a hero of mine named Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand is the father of the church in Romania. I have great, if, uh, if you're over a certain age, that name might be common. If you're under a certain age, you might be going, who? Let me explain. I've graciously I, I received the opportunity to be able to preach um, in uh, the church Richard Wormbrand built in Tamiashwara. Um, it is enormous. I've never seen anything like it. It was one of the most moving experiences in my life. 40 minutes before church was a prayer meeting. The church was full to capacity for pre-service prayer. I have never seen anything like it. Uh, it's still a bit conservative in the sense that men sit on one side, women sit on the other. Um, the, uh, I, during the song service, I could understand nothing because there's no similarity between Romanian and English. Um, but they were, I've never seen this ever. On the right-hand side was a row of octogenarians, okay? So um, women in their 80s. And they were arching their back, singing as loud as they could. I mean, I had, I was, it was, there was a thousand people there and I had never seen anything like that. And I looked and it was happening everywhere. 85 year old women, like people not known for their uh, enthusiasm around praise and worship. I mean, arching their back, screaming the song at the sky. And I said to my, to my translator, I said, what the heck? He said, he said, what? I said, those women have to be 85 or they need to eat more broccoli, something. They, they like, they're old and like, and he said, oh, you forget. He said, there was a time in their life it was illegal to sing. He said, Americans complain about the songs you choose. Romanians just celebrate that we can sing. And I thought, oh boy. So Richard Wormbrand's the reason for that. Richard Wormbrand was tortured um, by the communist regime because he was standing up for religious freedom in Romania. I got to meet him. Um, uh, he came to my seminary uh, towards the end of his life. Um, I'd never seen anything like it. He was uh, in a wheelchair. His feet were up. His, seat, his feet were like size 20, um, even though they were meant to be size 10. Uh, the reason is, is that part of his torture, they would put his feet in stocks and the soldier would beat his feet with bamboo rods, um, trying to get him to deny Christ. Um, uh, he would... Um, um, he, he told stories of them taking them to the river. Um, I can't remember the name of the river, but it was freezing cold, three degrees. And they, would, they stripped his wife naked 
Um, and they said, you'll deny Christ now. And he said, I won't. And they throw her in the river. Um, and then soldiers would fish her out with fishing poles. And then they would stand her in front of him. And she, and, and, and he, they said, you'll deny Christ now. And she was telling him in her shivering, please don't, don't do it. And then they throw her in the river again. Um, he said, um, he said, one of the things that they did to torture you, um, he said, you can't believe how much this matters is they removed all windows and all clocks. He said, you can't believe what it does to your brain if you don't know what time it is. When do you sleep? When do you wake? When do you, like, if there's no light to tell you what time it is. He said, it tortures you um, that way. Um, he said, it was, un, it was unbelievable um, what would happen. So I won like a drawing to sit with him with 12 people. And we got to ask him questions. And so one of the questions we asked him was, was how, did you treat your, how, how did you treat your torturers? He said, oh, he said, that's an easy answer. He said, because me and my wife both answered the same way every time. He said, every time after they tortured us, this is what we would say. We love you. God loves you. We forgive you. God forgives you. Go home tonight knowing there's nothing between you and God. He said, then they'd come in and the next day they torture us. And, we love you. God loves you. We forgive you. God forgives you. Go home tonight knowing there's nothing between you and God. And he said, every now and then, a soldier would get so moved by that that they would ask us about the compassion of Christ, how we're so profoundly connected to that. And every now and then, those people would connect their life to Christ. And he said, I always loved it when a soldier who connected his life to Christ was assigned the torturing for the day. Because what he would do is he'd come in and he'd say, we got to put on a show. And he'd hit the wall and I'd scream. And it was, it, and it was, it was this, but it was, it, it, was actually, it, it was actually not that. He said, but one of the things they would do to torture us is they would say, you may as well give up. This, the church has been squashed. There is no more church left. The thing you're fighting for is gone. And so we asked, we, we asked, how did you get through that? And here's what I expected him to say. I expected him to say, when you're in moments like that, God gives you a special provision of the Spirit of Christ to get you through it. It's a grace to get through it. And I believe that. That's what I expected him to say. This is what you hear when people get cancer. How'd you get through that? I don't know how I got through it. It's just when you get told that there's a grace that comes on you uh, to deal with it. Or when this happens, there's a grace. I expected that, but that's not what he said. He said, you know what got us through that? It is a special provision of the Spirit of Jesus, but what, got, what was more than that? was knowing that we were not alone. He said every now and then the soldiers that, got, that, that, that came to Christ, they would risk their life to bring notes in. They'd smuggle little notes in. And, the, and we would destroy the notes after I read them. But the notes would say things like, Richard, you're in there, but we're out here. Keep going, keep going. What you're doing matters. We're with you. You're in there, we're out here, but you are not alone. We can do nothing to stop that, but you're not alone. Keep going. And he said it was knowing that their prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus, knowing I was not alone, that's what got us through. So, so how can we participate? The way I say it on the slide is, how can we have a vested interest in someone else's deliverance? And what I mean by that is, how can we make sure their hands stay they clean, their heart stays pure, their taste stays sweet? Well, well, it's through our prayers. Not our judgment, not our pet answers, not our easy solutions, our presence and our prayers, and a reaffirmation that there is a provision of the Spirit of Jesus. Like, what, what does that even mean? It, it, it means when we see someone freezing the present, we remind them that, that this doesn't get the last word. 
When we see someone generalizing the particular, we challenge that because we are vested in their deliverance. Let's say it this way. Next slide. So this should teach us something about communion as well, identifying with the grace of Christ. See, once we've experienced grace, we can never let people suffer alone. That God isn't just putting you back together. He's repairing the whole world and we get to be a part of it. The next thing, if I can give you a thought around communion, uh, that, that, that way you never take communion the same again. Um, it is a very biblical, scriptural idea that Christ is holding the whole world together. That by him and through him all things were made, and in him all things hold together. So there's a lot of talk about the bigness of God. God's so big, God's so big, God's so big. Yes, he's holding the whole universe together, yes. But what doesn't get enough playtime is God is infinitely small. That the same God that's holding the universe together is also holding the atoms together that hold the molecules together that connect your forehead so you don't turn to dust right? So it, yes, in one sense, God is infinitely big, but the mystery of Christ is that the thing that's infinitely big is also holding you together and me together and that chair together and that tree together. And everything that's existing in creation is being held together by Christ. And this has huge implications. If there's only one God and that one God is holding all things together, we could never purposely harm someone without knowing we're harming ourselves, because we're coming against the force that's holding the whole universe together, right? There would be no racism because there is no us in them. There would be no misogyny, male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, free, for Christ is all and is in all things. And Christ is, the spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way. And so one of the mysteries of communion is that the God that's big enough to hold the universe together is also holding that bread together because that bread is all things. So the mystery is, is that the God that holds the universe together is also caring about my substance. Jesus said it this way, give us today our da daily bread. T terrible translation, by the way. In, in Greek uh, and in Hebrew, it says, give us today the bread that transcends, right? So in other words, it's, it's more a prayer about remove our fear of not, remove our fear of going hungry than it is about actually, uh, right? So, so it's, it's, it's the, it's, it's give us, it's give us an awareness that you care about our, our, our needs today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And this is what makes communion so profound is that in Edithburg at Light Church in Edithburg, when you guys do take communion together, are there rich people that go to this church? Yes. Are there poor people that go to this church? Yes. But when you take communion, one Christ, no rich or poor, what? No, uh, one Christ. Are there men that go here? Yes. Women? Yes. One. Christ. No black, no white. One. No, 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 there's no racial differences. Not, not when you're taking communion. It's one. It's, it's, it's a call to remember that the God that holds the universe together is also holding us together and them and them and them and them. And we are called to let the Christ that holds us all together be glorified more than we need to be right about one particular thing. It's that. Let, let's say it this way. Next slide. So, Great sermons are not meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's wrestle a little bit. What has happened to us that we need to resolve will turn out for our deliverance? What are we going through right now that will turn out for our deliverance? Um, thank goodness the fire got quenched. Um, but for some people, it hurt them bad. This will turn out for my deliverance. Maybe, maybe um, I, I had lunch yesterday with a friend that um, because of cancer treatment, um, it released a virus into his system that's causing him to lose his eyesight. Um, and this will turn out for my deliverance. What about the 26-year-old kid that's off the rails? This will turn out for my 
deliverance. What about that medical test you're waiting still on the results for? This will turn out for my uh, deliverance. This is a minor thing. January 13th, um, I got robbed in Houston, Texas. Never been robbed before, but I got robbed. and They, 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 they took everything. I was standing there with just my clothes on. That's all I had. And um, trying to figure out how to get to Australia because that was my next leg of the trip <laughs> with nothing. They took my passport, my medicine, my computer. That's a new computer, by the way. <laughs> this will turn out for my deliverance. But let's say it this way. Can we resolve to have clean hands, pure heart, and sweet taste? That's what my deliverance means. Is there any place right now we're tempted to lose the plot? <clears throat> there was four of them, one of me. I'm glad I didn't lose my mind and chase them down. <laughs> this meeting probably would have got canceled. <laughs> um, next slide. Is there any place where we have frozen the present? Where we think, oh, this pain will never leave me. Um, I can tell you my own personal testimony. The night I got robbed... After the adrenaline, um, I was a nervous wreck that night. I was paranoid. I was in a mess. And I started thinking, what if this feeling never leaves me? Um, and it, obviously, the psychologist in me goes, come on, Shane, just get through it. it it's fine. It, this, this, this stuff passes. Um, but when we freeze the present, is, let's say it this way, is there any place we've generalized the, the particular? Maybe we say it this way, do, do you need prayer? And not in the, hey, I'll say a prayer for you. We'll remember you in our prayers. Keep all that. It's in the sense of, I need to borrow your strength and hope sense of the word. It's the writing Richard Wormbrand going, you're not alone. You're not alone. It's the, let's see if I could put some words around this. It's, I'm running low on hope and you seem to be doing okay with hope. Can I borrow some of your hope? <laughs> it, what if we were brave enough? Because here's the other part. Church people go, I was going through something and no one in the church reached out to me. Did they know about it? We're not mind readers, right? What, what, what if we were open and authentic enough to go, I'm going through something. Can I borrow your hope? Maybe that's what we need to do today before we leave. Is, is, is before you leave, walk up to somebody and say, I'm running a little low on hope. Can I borrow yours? And they'll let you. And, and if they won't, steal it, right? It's fine. <laughs> Next slide. This will turn out for my deliverance. Where do we need to say that until we feel it? This will turn out for my deliverance. So let's close out the morning um, with a prayer. Um, and let's stand together because I want to take you through a spiritual exercise that I think is pretty helpful. Um, first spiritual exercise is let's cancel the white noise of the week. And I want you to pick the thing, the person the test, the bank account number, the bill, whatever it is. And I want you to name it underneath your breath. Just right there, just between you and the Lord, just name it. It's this. It's Susie, it's Jim, it's Billy, it's the bill, it's the fire, it's the insurance company taking forever to answer my claim. It's whatever the case may be. And Lord, I pray that you give us the courage to see things different, the irresistible urge to respond to what we see. And we make a commitment today that this will turn out for my deliverance. Right? This will turn out for my deliverance. So one thing I appreciate about Pentecostal culture 
is we understand positive confession. And so not in a way that points you out or embarrasses you in any way. I just want us to together say this. I promise you I won't hurt you. I want us to confess out loud. It just says this. This will turn out for my deliverance. Ready? Let's say that together. Ready? Go. This will turn out for my deliverance. I'm going to do this three times. One for your head, one for your heart, and one for your gut. Okay? So the one for your head is this will turn out for my deliverance. Ready? Go. This will turn out for my deliverance. One more time for your heart. This will turn out for my deliverance. Now, one more time to your gut. This will turn out for my deliverance. Let's do a second confession. It says this. My hands will stay clean. Ready? Go. My hands will stay clean. Now, one more time for the heart. My hands will stay clean. And then one more time for the gut. My hands will stay clean. The next confession is this, my heart will stay pure. Let's try that. My heart will stay pure. Let's try it again. My heart will stay pure. One more time. My heart will stay pure. One last confession, it sounds like this. My taste will stay sweet. Ready, go. My taste will stay sweet. Now for the heart. My taste will stay sweet. Now for the gut. My taste will stay sweet, for this will turn out for my deliverance. This will turn out for my deliverance. This will turn out for my deliverance. I bless you, my brothers and sisters, to have your hands clean, your heart pure, your taste sweet. Keep your head up, your shoulders back, your hand clean, your heart pure, your taste sweet, for this will turn out for my deliverance. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for letting me spend the morning with you. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. This will turn out for my deliverance. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless.